result of the outbreak, your city or entire region may be endangered by a lethal agent. If conditions at your location make this a possibility, you need to consider staying in place until the threat has subsided or blown over. It's in our DNA. We choose the way of earth. We choose the right people we are. We know the difference between the reality of freedom and the illusion of freedom. There's a way to live with earth and a way not to live with earth. We choose the way of earth. My name is Ansley Jemison, and this is the Original People's Podcast, the Ongwehoi, the original people of here, Turtle Island. I'm coming to you today from Ganondagan State Historic Site, which was a traditional 17th century Seneca village that was wiped out by the French, but yet here we are today. We're still here. Just like all indigenous people, we're still here. We never went away. It's resiliency its toughness, its grit, but it's also the foundation and the roots of what we now know as the United States of America. However, there is a knowledge, a knowledge base, indigenous knowledge, that predates all of that, and we influence you every single day, whether you like it or not, whether you know it or not. But here we are, the Ongwenwe Podcast. With me today is a gentleman who I grew up knowing. I interviewed his father earlier today. Um, his father is a very famous pottery maker, an indigenous pottery maker. And this young man, this gentleman, who is my senior, he's a little bit older than me, maybe only a couple of years, I think. But uh, some of the earlier memories that I have of him was that, you know, my father and his father were both artists together. They'd be hanging out, this and that. And I remember when Mike would be over visiting his dad. And um, I remember one time we were up in his room, and he was uh, a big guitar guy. I think he's still a, a musician of sorts. And uh, he introduced me to that movie with Ralph Macchio and Steve Vai when they were doing the movie Crossroads. And he was kind of laying down the intricacies of why Ralph Macchio scene in that actually could actually beat a guy like Steve Vai, who was this amazing, ridiculous, like heavy metal sort of hair band, maybe cheese ball in the end, uh, guitar player. But um, both technically skilled, amazing artists. Um, I don't know if Ralph Macho actually played that part. Michael maybe confirmed that for me yeah, and, straight, and straightened me out at some point. Yeah. <laughs> um, so today, he's an educator, he's an artist, he's a musician, he's a cool community guy, and he's doing some really cool community work in and around the Seneca Nation territory. Um, he's an indigenous man who I have a lot of respect for, and I appreciate every opportunity I do have to sit down and speak with him because I certainly take something away from it and learn something every time. And I want to share some of that with you all who may be tuning into this and give him the opportunity to talk about his processes, who he is, where he's from, and just some of the cool stuff that he's up to. So uh, welcome, um, Mr. Michael Jones. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So Michael, was Ralph Macchio playing that part? What happened? You know, I don't really know if he was or not, but I, I think he, he definitely took the cake on that. You know, I thought he was a... He had the, the real blues, as they say, you know, and I thought that's what really moved me when I was 14 when I saw that movie. Made me want to play harmonica. That's what I mean, pick up a harmonica and start playing. No that kidding. That movie, yeah. Now, did you ever go down to a crossroads and make any kind of deals? I've been in a few like that around Cataraugus. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. I'll tell you where. 
crooked S might be more relevant. <laughs> Which has since been straightened out, allegedly. <laughs> yeah, so they say. Unless you go off into the woods. Then. No, Stay out of the woods, they say. You'll get, you'll get ticks. <laughs> you go down the crooked ass. That's awesome. Okay. Um, all right, man. Are you still playing the harp? I mean, what's going on? Yeah, I've been playing since I was 14, and, uh, you know, I've, I've sat in with some pretty fun people. Um, Gary yeah. Farmer? Are you playing? Do you play the harp with Gary Farmer? Not with Gary Farmer. I mean, I, I've, I've seen him down in Santa Fe. I used to live in Santa Fe for a while, so, I mean, I'd see him around there. I used to go to Bruce King's house, and we'd jam out over there, and that would be fun, you know, and uh, Steady Roland Bob Margolin was in town one time, and I got to got to sit in with him, and he was a uh, guitar player that used to play with Muddy Waters, and, uh, of course, we were all kind of, you know, I had a few, and... Uh, you know, we got up there on stage, and he let me play, and I was like, I was like, this is great, you know. And he, uh, I said, what key? Because the only key there is, you know. Like, mm. You know, <laughs> so I was like, okay, steady rolling, Bob Margolin. No, I'll take it. You know? So um, now, did you have a handle? Did you have a stage name yourself? No, no, I always just, you know, I was just going by my name, just playing wherever. You know, I used to play, you know, back home, just at wherever, you know, parties around, around, uh, around the res, and. Uh, that's always been like a, a calling for me, you know, um, music has always, um, you know, helped me along with art, too. You know. All right, tell me this. I mean, I, you know, you're from the Cattaraugus Territory and famous for blues-influenced indigenous bands. Um, Steve Ray Vaughan also kind of falls in that, in that mix as well. Um, mm -hmm. He's more of a... Where would you put it, Stevie? Like where? Oh yeah, I mean, I was like all all into Stevie. I mean, it was just when I first you know heard him. Like I still can't even really listen to some of his stuff. It's just something about the way he plays. It just goes way back, you know. I, mean, I I learned on Muddy Waters, and I learned on all these guys from like the fifties and the sixties. I would just play the tapes, the cassette tapes, over and over until I could match them. And I didn't know that there was other keys in harmonica. I got this, you know, key of C. And, uh, and so I was trying to bend these notes that weren't there because it was a different key. And, uh, you know, that's how I learned how to bend because I was trying to create a note that wasn't there. And, uh, but once, you know, I heard Steve Ray Vaughan, I mean, that was just, that's what we were all listening to back then, you know, and I used to go down and play with um, Norman Jimerson, uh, artist. Um, Storm and Norman. Yeah, I used to go down to his house. I was about 15. And uh, all the other guys were in their mm, 20s, 30s. And I used to play harmonica with them, which later some of them uh, became the, uh, I think maybe the Blues Hounds mm. um, or the Bucktown Blues Band nice. at one point. Those nice. guys. Yeah, so I was pretty young tooling around with these guys. and um, But that's where I was at. That was really, that was really fun. Nice. Yeah. Very cool. So, all right, explain to me like bending notes and things like that. What uh, is that? Yeah, I mean, bending notes on the harmonica, I mean, it's, it's just con it's constricting the air. It's, it's trying to, you know... Um, it's like sucking through a straw, kind of, you know, it's hard to explain. But, um, you know, you're just, just like we've been to know on a, on a guitar, you know, um, that twang that you get. And it takes takes a while to figure it out, but uh, but you're, basically you're you're controlling the amount of air that's coming through that harmonica, that particular reed, uh, so that you can kind of bend it and you got to hold it. So you're controlling that air and constricting it at a, at a certain pace. And, you know, when you're playing around with that pace and you're playing around with that rhythm, so what role does I mean? And I'm I'm not a musician by any means, and I would never ever. I mean, I, I have an appreciation for music, and there's a lot of music genres and things like that I love. 
Um, I have a harmonica that I've just blown on and whatever else, but I, I know nothing about it. I know nothing about the, the, the mechanics of the thing, really. Um, but, like, what role does the harmonica play, like, in, in music? Like, what do you see? It's not a percussion instrument. It's not really, it's not the guitar. What is What is the harmonica? Yeah, I mean, for, for me, I was always copying guitar licks, you know, because I couldn't play guitar so much, so I was always copying whatever I heard. So I was bending my, my, my notes to match like whatever, you know, like if Steve Ray Vaughan was playing something, I'd bend it to match what I was hearing, you know, so I was playing it a lot differently. I wasn't like really playing it like a harmonica at first. Um, but then I would try to copy like Sonny Boy Williamson and, you know, it's an accompanying instrument, but you know, it's, it's a lead, it's a lead instrument, you know, mm. um, but uh, you have to kind of control it so it doesn't get too much in your face mm. all the time. You know, I, I used to play with this, uh, Big tall black guy named uh, uh, Solomon down in Washington D.C. on the on the streets down there, and I used to because I used to work for a, a music store down there, independent music store. And this guy was playing, and he, and he was you know had a little cymbal on the ground, had a harmonica brace, you know, and he's playing bass, and he was just he play every Friday night. And I hear him, I'm like, that guy's good. His name was Charles Solomon, and so I finally went up there and got the courage to ask him if I could play with him. And he said, Yeah, sure, you can come on and play, you know. And so I'm like playing, you know, and I'm just like going to town and everything. And he goes, he goes, hey, you got you got to wait for the space, wait for the space. And I didn't really know what he meant, you know, till later that like actually less is more with harmonica. Hmm. And so, you know, it's actually better. You get you'll you're not like overpowering. You're not just like you know, making all this noise, you know, because we're on top of it. You know, you just wait for the space, you know. So those were kind of the only kind of. I don't know uh, anybody that taught me anything. You know, I, I would I would credit Charles Solomon. So a street musician, yeah, who was able to kind of like slow you down a little bit, bring you back down. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and so again, like, why isn't it the blues and those sort of things kind of to kind of marry up well with like indigenous culture, indigenous it's stories? It's pain. It's uh, it's pain turned into power. Pain turned into. Uh, um, expression. It's, it's emotional expression at its heart. So, I mean, poetry does the same thing if, you, if you're into poetry. Um, you know, visual expression, painting, um, pottery, or whatnot, but it's very immediate, you know. Um, I, I used to sing by myself um, for like two years without in front, not in front of anybody, and I would just practice and I, until I got the courage to like sing in front of somebody. But um, that was the most um, healing that I've ever felt was singing. It was something about it where you're transmuting whatever pain, whatever emotional stuff that you got going on, um, it gets transmuted and it's like a reflection. It comes back on you. It's like you can feel that immediately. You feel it immediately like you're getting relief. Um, you know, and it's, it's good for you. So you don't have to worry about doing it too much or anything. So it's that music comes from the soul really coming to life there and that embodiment, but also you are finding it as like a therapy. Yeah, as well, definitely. And so, what was the what were the messages? What were you singing about? Like, what was what were you talking about? Um, well, I mean, I, uh, I I grew up without any running water. I was born in '73, so I'm a little bit your senior. But um, you know, I was the only child, um, and uh, you know, things were pretty rough. Things were pretty rough. Where my my story's kind of rough, you know. And um, but it was also really good at the same time. So I grew up with a lot of people that were. You know, in their 80s or 90s now, um, as an only child too, and uh, you know, my my biological mother, she was uh, into acting, and uh, she read poetry, 
Um, and so then my father was into poetry and into art. And so they'd have these deep conversations about art and you know, music and, and poetry, you know, and I was, I was steeped in that kind of world. And so any kind of emotional challenges or anything I would have, you know, um, first it was clay, you know, I started doing clay as a, as a little kid. But once I found music, it, um, you know, that was, that was something like a, a good healing remedy. Um, and so that's, um, you know, just the challenges that I had growing up on the, on the res, um, you know, were, it was also a good way to get accepted, I think, as well. It's like, if you could play an instrument, you know, <laughs> you're okay, you know. So you kind of made it through your high school years a little bit better. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it was um, definitely challenging growing up. Gotcha. You know? So your art today, though, is different. You know, I mean, like, you're in the same vein as, as, as your dad. Um, you do pottery, you know, and you're, you're very accomplished at that. Um, but also illustration and things like that. Is that, is that accurate as well? Or, I mean, you're more painting, illustration? Um, you know, with my illustrating, yeah, I mean, it's illustrating. I, I don't really consider myself a painter. I kind of, you know, I've always doodled and drawn. Same thing, it was good therapy, you know, growing up. And I always said if I ever sold my stuff, I always wanted it to be something that I like to do. So it's never going to be like this chore to do. So I would just draw, and I would, you know, and I have like paint markers, and I'll have mixed media stuff, and it's just a cathartic, um, good experience. And if it sells, it sells, you know. But I never wanted to, I never wanted to constrain that part of it. Um, partially because, like, with the pottery thing, you know, I started selling pottery when I was probably ten years old. Um, I used to hitchhike with my dad down from Bucktown up to the clinic uh, near Four Corners, and then uh, we'd sell to the nurses and doctors there, and then we'd. Uh, hitchhike again from there to Gowanda, you know, and um, get some groceries, a bag of groceries, and then we hitchhike back. So this was like an all-day affair, you know, because it took a while to get a ride, you know, walk and whatnot, and that was, that was, I was with him a lot doing that kind of, kind of life, you know, and so, um, so pottery was more of like, a, you know, I started selling when I was about 10, um, so I started, we didn't have a lot of money, so it was like, it was like a necessity kind of thing at the time. So it was like, okay, my, my dad can do this. I'm just, you know, I'm here. We didn't really have a car a lot of times. We didn't have a lot of stuff. So that was the entertainment. That was what was going on, you know, and I was the only child. So, you know, I picked up on it and he was selling. So I was like, I wanted to, I wanted to have my own money too, you know. And I remember I made like a, a little rattle or something like that. And I, I traded it for like ice cream and stuff, don't I? For sale, Sprigs. Oh, Sprigs, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it was kind of it was independence, you know. So there was a, there was a, a, kind of a work aspect to it, I guess, from the get go. Um, it was enjoyable, but it was also like, well, we got, we got to, you know, we got to work. It was a family business. Yeah, it was. It, it was, was a family business. It was a family hustle, and you yeah. know, and, and it made sense to the point that like. I guess, too, like it was a form of expressionism, but it was also out of necessity, you know, mm -hmm. which is kind of an interesting thing. Right. Um, but what do you think that did for you coming up and, and getting older and, and, and whatnot? I mean, like, where did it take you? I mean, all of that. I mean, the art and the experiences and the stories. I mean, like, you've moved around a bit, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just an appreciation for anybody that, that's, um, you know, um, struggling in anything, really. You know, I, I've seen, you know, as other people have um you know, addictions of, of any different types. Um, and I know that art helps that. I, I know that. Um, any type of art. So uh, in that aspect, um, I have like a very deep, uh, well-versed 
um, experience with how that can actually break through those walls that are that are um, that a lot of like addicts or people that have um, trouble. You know, um, it, it gives them that sense of expression that they might not be able to 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 do otherwise, and that's kind of what they need a lot of times. They need to stop and just kind of like pause and be able to just you know express. Maybe maybe they have trauma. You know, um, you know a lot of us have trauma. You know, generational trauma or independent you know, individual trauma. Um, so just being around all these different artists and whatnot—that's that's what I take from it the most, and I'm still taking it, you know, today. Just, just the um, the positive aspects of it, where it just it can actually transmute whatever pain you have, you know, if you stick with it. It's just an experience. You know? So now, in the work that you're doing today, um, you know, I know you're with part of the immersion. Uh, program the language program and things like that. Are you incorporating your art? Are you incorporating that as part of the process as well as to like help people to kind of bring it holistic or full circle in terms of like now creating and doing things with their hands, but then also giving them the language as to how to express it as well. Yeah, it's coming together little by little. I mean, the first pot that I ever did that had language like on it was the one that's here at Ganondagan, which was a, a big cooking pot that I did for um, installation outside, um, dealing with COVID-19. But, um, and you know, I just had like Gottney Goyle um, printed good. out on there, you know, the good mind. But um, I've had other ideas about incorporating language into that um, as well. And it is kind of coming together closer and closer because I started off as a media person for about three years and I got to, you know, be with these elders that are not here anymore and, um, you know, trying to learn the language without any of the, all the pronouns and all of the different things that are, that go into it. It's, it's, it's complicated and, uh, you know, and it was really difficult, but I did a lot of documenting and I did a lot of recording and, I, you know, I was really trying to, trying to get it, you know, and then when immersion came on, came on the uh, field, we uh, started learning a lot all about the different pronouns that actually were there, which is huge, and how you can conjugate and whatnot. So that just like flipped a switch, and that's just pretty recent, that's in the last four years or so. So I happened to be going from media to immersion, and I became a student, and I just worked my way up into an immersion teacher. So, and I'm noticing just um, how healing learning language can be for, for most people, you know, especially our people, you know, and, because I used to hear that growing up with those same people that were like in their 80s or 90s now that had you know, maybe problems, you know, trauma-induced problems. Um, they couldn't communicate with their parents. That's that generation. So they were like that first, maybe that first generation that their parents spoke. Their parents were fluent, but they weren't. And the amount of shame and guilt and all of those, you know, nasty things um, can induce you to become addicted to something. So and, let's uh, let's pause there for one quick yeah. second and just kind of bring some context into this for some folks who may not be familiar with why a generation of people may have lost their culture, their language. This is through the residential schools. Right. This is through colonization. This is through institutionalizing people. This is indoctrination, all those sort of things. So now you were working with an age group of folks who were their parents were first language speakers, mm -hmm. fluent speakers, and now they have this challenge and shame of having lost all that, mm -hmm. and then still having an indigenous identity and an indigenous, and knowing that they grew up on the res or they grew up you know, in, a, in an indigenous family, mm -hmm. but 
they're not speaking their language. Mm-hmm. And so this can lead to confusion, shame, mm-hmm. troubles, alcoholism, addictions, all sorts of other things, and abuse. The, the abuses yeah. that kids were, you know, faced with while going to these residential schools. I mean, sexual abuse, sexual violence, you know, just outright abuse, um, you know, all the horrible things you can imagine that could happen were, were happening. So what was some of that work and what was it like trying to, you know, get in with these folks and, and getting them to open up a little bit more to, to be able to share what they knew and to talk about it? I mean, because there had to have been, like you mentioned, I mean, the guilt and the shame. Yeah, I mean, just uh, the, if you could, uh, you know, however much Seneca language you had, you know, some of these, some of these elders, um, you would get on a, a different level because it's a different language. So you would hear different stories and you hear different things that you might not hear so much in English. Um, but, you know, like when I was a kid, you know, um, talking to the same kind of generation that were like maybe actively, you know, alcoholic or whatnot, I noticed the same parallels, you know, um, how they were just, um, you know, having a hard time with it. And the main thing was like, you know, you got to learn the language, you got to learn the language, you know, um, was being pushed, but it was like, I feel like I saw like firsthand like why you really need to learn the languages because it, it was so um, it, it was so intense of how how long it wasn't just intense but it was like this long generational you know uh, trauma that um, that is really hard to untangle but what I'm noticing now like teaching and the more language that I'm learning um, it's it's untangling that little by little by little and I see like the people that can speak, there's not that many that are fluent, you know, um, around today, you know, they, to see them lighten up when you can speak something to them, you know, and I was thinking, you know, if you were, if you didn't, if you couldn't speak, you know, if nobody could understand what you were saying, you know, how lonely would that be, mm. you know, how lonely would that be to not be able to be understood by someone, if somebody comes up and you're like trying really hard to like, you know, um, speak your language and maybe they can actually have a conversation with you at some point. Maybe it goes a, a step further and you're learning even more and more. And you just, you see this, like, this um, healing. You see healing happen with these older people um, that, that you cannot, you can't replace that. You know, and I feel like I saw the, the real pain of it when I was a kid. And now I'm seeing just little glimpses because we're still working like crazy to learn. But I'm seeing little glimpses of healing of these older people that are in their you know, 70s and 80s. And they're, finding, they're finally hearing those voices come yeah. out and hearing people speak the language. Yeah, and, yeah. and actually we have, there's, there's kids now, you know, there's kids of the immersion students that are speaking, you know. There's, there's five-year-olds um, that, are, that are actually speaking, like, organically, you know. And that's because their parents were immersion. Their parents, you know, taught, taught, to, taught to them since they were babies, you know. And that's basically what what we have to do. It's just a long road, you know, but it's just, it's awesome to see that little light shining. And then you see like, uh, you know, we have one of the elders here who I work with, you know, I work with Sandy, Sandy Dowdy, so I work with, um, you know, a lot. And, um, and she's actually on the younger side of the, of the food elders mm-hmm. um, because she was raised by um, older people. But just to see that, that spark, you know, or of, of recognition like you guys might actually you guys might actually get it you know i mean we're never going to be first language speakers but i feel like we're we're pretty close like we got it we got the dragon by the tail you know we're just like whipping around you know more than we ever have and and now we got like you know there's other places doing variety shows you know we got podcasts popping up we got you know 
you know, uh, videos and whatnot, you know, because I got into that too with like puppetry, you know, and uh, doing a Seneca language puppet show and like trying to take the fear out of learning language, you know, it, it's all of that is what's um, contributing to language revitalization. So it sounds like you're trying to meet your students or your audience where they're at, you know, and you're trying to use each of the methodologies of, you know, transmission, whatever that is. I mean, but I think that nothing's going to replace immersion. You know, I mean, I, I, you know, spent a year in Brazil. I went to Brazil and didn't speak a lick of Portuguese. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. you know, after living in the culture for a year, I was at least able to at least like bump my way around like a, a market enough to be able to buy things and do what I had to do. And, you know, at the time I was still kind of drinking myself then and like, you know, add a couple of shots here and there and I was speaking much more fluently and, right, right, you know, yeah. a little loosened up, yeah. you know. Yeah, takes yeah. away the anxiety. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. But, um, so... In terms of, you know, how do you make a language relevant, you know, that's not something that's like mainstream, you know, I mean, and I think, and, and I'm just saying that as devil's advocate, I understand the importance and I understand the value of it, but, and, but how do you sell it? I mean, how, what's the pitch? I mean, how do you get people to realize and understand that like, no, this is really important I mean, yeah. because I mean, there's indigenous knowledge that's messages and codes and things like that that are as part of the language that don't easily translate into English, you know? Yeah, I, I think about, like, myself as an example. Like, my grandfather, my, my father's father, was uh, a fluent speaker. So it was his, his brother. Um, he died when I was four. I didn't get to, you know, really know him at all, you know, or anything like that. But the first thing I like to ask um, anybody who's learning languages, you know, why are you doing it? You know, mm -hmm. why? Um, because you've got to have a good why or you won't be able to, to make it all the way through because it's hard. It's yeah. just like you're gonna you're gonna run out of like it's you may want it, but you know, you still gotta like do the all the work to be able to get there, you know, and um, that's that's the main thing of just, you know, who are who are your fluent speakers in your family? You know, your grandpa, great grandpa, you know, you gotta have a vision of that, you know, and why you'd wanna talk to them. And mostly what I'm noticing are the young mothers that are that are really got a big why, you know, and those are the ones that are raising their kids with the language, you know, and, you're, and that in itself is its own little, you know, engine that, that's, that's um, you know, creating, creating this thing that we didn't think we could actually do. I, I, I didn't know if we could actually do it. So are these the language nests that you're yeah, talking about? Yeah, I mean, there's a language nest now from one of the learners. Um, uh, <laughs> her name is uh, Whitney Nephew, and uh, she was uh, also, uh, you know, fellow student, fellow student. Uh, we were both in the same uh, immersion uh, class and she was just amazing and another one is uh, you know there's a few of them you know I don't want to name drop people but uh, sure but there's but in the community everybody kind of you know knows knows and you know these these people are just like really taking it seriously and it's this new kind of revitalization and it's like because they're seeing the results too it's making it even more like motivational to go in and learn it you know, but it's still it's still an up, upward battle, you know, but at least we're seeing results that most elders are pretty, you know, impressed by because you can actually have a conversation with an elder organically. We're not reading things. We're just shooting from the hip. And that's, you know, and that's because of lots and lots of work, like transcribing conversations that were recorded and, you know, getting getting way into it um, is what it takes, you know. So how did you get into you know, the recording side. I mean, because, like, what my experience yeah. has been is that there's a lot of old folks that just do not want to be on camera or don't want to be on videotape or whatever. And, and I think yeah. part of that is, like, that apprehension and that reluctance of, like, either 
you know, saying something wrong or out of turn or mm-hmm. somebody criticizing them, you know, yeah. um, how do you build up that trust? How do you get that time and effort? Um, and still, you know, there's there's definitely, you know, um, quite a few elders, I would say like 80% of them don't want to be recorded. You know, there's probably 20% that, that will. And, you know, you don't, you just do a lot of writing for those ones, you know, and you try to try to get it. But the ones that will record, um, you know, we capitalize on that because, there's not that many of them that want to do that, you know, and so we capitalize on recording and um, and building. It's a relationship build, building, you know. It, that's what it is too, um, you know. For when I started the media, I had a camera rolling for like I don't know, it was like six months. I have it, and before the actual group kind of got kind of got used to, it. we actually came to Ganon again. We spent the night in the, in the longhouse out there, you know, and I filmed all of that and whatnot. Um, so it's just it's persistence with without being rude or without being real you know abrupt or anything but it's like it just takes time it's like well after a while there's this trust builds where you can just like you know this this is why we're doing this you know it becomes apparent it's like this is why we're doing this it's not just to just to grab the language or whatever it's like because we actually have to use it as a tool to be able to really understand what you're saying you know um writing is not is, is kind of fallible you know to some extent so that's what we do we do a lot of recording and then we we flip it with transcripts and then we're, we do a lot of uh, immersion so it's just like shooting from the hip doing and all these things mm. um, staying in the language um, songs help a lot because if you're just starting it helps you you know understand the you know the syllables and, and, and get used to it with a song like sing Tuisa songs or a Dolan songs or something like that um, so that kind of breaks breaks it up and makes it easier to, to to speak, you know. And then the other thing is creating a safe environment. So it's got to be a safe environment. So it's got to be it's got to be uh, safe and it's got to be uh, uh, fun if you can make it fun. But it's such a it's such a heavy responsibility you're dealing with trying to trying to save the language. Um, it's easy to get lost in that. But uh, there's a balance there, you know. And, and luckily for us, we all natives have a really good sense of humor. <laughs> so the sense of humor is the trust you know the i mean it's it's a lot of i don't think it's smoke and mirrors i think it's just trying to figure out the recipe or the right approach or the right way to kind of get it all to kind of come together and you know you're you're against the clock at times you know what i mean and you're you know we're losing folks and, and things like that and you know, when I took on this role in this position that I'm in now as, like, the cultural liaison for Ganondagan, um, you know, my intention is to get out of the community, go and talk to people, go and see who's doing what. And, um, you know, one of the things I said to them was, like, I hope I'm not too late, you know. And that's a real fear of mine is that, you know, I, I mean, we're, always, we're always still going to be indigenous people, but to understand the culture to the roots and to the, to the core of it all. I mean, you have to understand the language, you know, I think that's a, that's an integral part of it all. And that's a major piece of the identity. Um, you know, and I'm by no means a, a first language speaker. I mean, I probably understand more than I know, um, in terms of being able to speak outwardly, but, or outright, but, um, you know, what a, what an amazing challenge you're, you're faced with, but also what a really cool experience it must be for you to have that sort of insider opportunity, you know, to hear the stories and to hear, you know, maybe some of the passion, some of the challenges, some of the, I mean, folks have seen 
many different levels. I mean, you know, just in our lifetime alone, I mean, we've seen changes on, on territories, on reservations and things like that. But like for you to be able to hear some of these stories from people who live down in, you know, in around where like the part of Allegheny got flooded mm-hmm. to now moving up to like where we're, we're currently situated. Mm-hmm. You know, what was that story? What are some of those stories like or some of those abruptions mm-hmm. and, and things mm-hmm. like that or those challenges and that? Yeah, there was, I mean, there was, uh, you know, a grant back in 2002, I think, where they, they recorded you know, a lot of different elders, and, and some of those stories, um, you know, they talk about Kinsua, and they talk about being removed, and, and some of them, you know, go into a little bit of detail in there, but a lot of that was kind of locked away for a long time because um, it wasn't translated, it wasn't uh, transcribed, so you really didn't, you really didn't know what they were saying unless you, unless you spoke, you know, and so now you're like seeing this picture um, a little bit differently because you're thinking differently. The more, the more I learn, the more I realize, you know, just like any other language, you're thinking differently because it's another language. Um, and I can't really explain it. But, um, but yeah, so it's like you're, you're unlocking these, these, these things that, are, that have been in there, you know, for 20 years or whatever, these recordings, and you're just you're understanding what they're talking about a little bit better, you know, just a little bit more. Some of them probably haven't really been listened to better or, or really understood. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of pain involved, um, and it's a lot of um, it's a lot of responsibility um, to to just listen to these stories and then what what you're doing with them. And, you know, um, I just think of them as uh, you know their personal stories, a lot of them, and also just for students of, of language, you know, just to be their educational tools. But anybody that that goes into language and is like really you know, serious about it has to has to be able to handle that weight of like not only trying to carry this, you know, but also these stories that they're talking about. So it's like it just it gets it gets pretty heavy and so you have to create uh, almost like a support group kind of thing and you have to look towards the hope, um, which again are these like little you know, few little kids that are that are speaking, you know, that's 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 the hope there and people that are making these, you know, um, you know, puppet shows or, or whatever variety shows and that, that kind of thing, just keep pushing, keep pushing, keep pushing. But yeah, those stories are out there. And, you know, you, the more you learn, the more you, the more language you learn, the more you're articulating what they're saying and the deeper you're going. And it's like, and you have to be prepared for that in some sense, because um, it's, it's, it's heavy. It's a heavy thing. So you got to make sure that you're, you know, you're with like-minded people that are doing the same thing, you know, because um, it is a lot of responsibility. To and are those people sort of your, maybe your sounding boards or maybe a place where, like, you have that safe space where you can talk about maybe some of the heavy that you're picking up and yeah. taking on? Yeah, you know? what I'm learning is, like, you know, this language realization isn't just about grammar and just about, it. this is about being able to handle that weight, the real weight that you come across and also um, being able to be as fearless as possible as humble as possible at the same time you know and you have to be able to um, support one another and you have to keep doing that over and over because I think a lot of times we have a hard time supporting one another for some reason maybe, maybe generational trauma or something like that but um but a lot of times we seem to kind of just kind of do it alone Whatnot. And this is one thing that you cannot do alone, you know, you have to kind of 
come together about what we're doing. Why are we doing this? Why are you trying to learn this thing? You know, what what are you doing? What are your what's your reasoning behind it? And the reasoning is always, you know, um, it's it's you're speaking a language that, that is just, you know, it's it's right on that cusp right now. You know, it's right on that cusp. It's, it's, it's sunset. You know. Yeah. And um, but the, the beauty of it is, it's like we actually went through and we're breaking through right at that cusp of like understanding this um, you know how huge it is um, but I know that I feel that we're, we're further along than we've ever been that's amazing um, well it's, it, it is hopeful man I mean I, I wanted to ask about the hopelessness that can kind of come along with this but I want to focus on the hope man I mean yeah. I think that's a much more positive thing and um, and for you to be able to see just even that um, in your time that you've been working with this and the challenges that you've had to kind of go through and, and to come to this, um, you know, and, and you've had your challenges along the way, you know, which is kind of, you know, either rocked you, hit you, you know, it, it's not easy. Um, and like you were mentioning, I mean, it's sometimes we're not always the best support for one another, but, you know, I think we all have to see each other for the fact that, like, we're all trying to do our part, you know, we're all trying to do our thing and whatever that is. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, if, if, we're at, if at least we're trying, I mean, we... Right. We owe it to that person to like, hey, you know, like let's let's give them a little support here and let's do whatever we can. Mm -hmm. So, does your art, I mean, does that also serve as like a bit of therapy for you? I mean, does that kind of help you unpack some of this stuff and help you express? And, and have you taken any of the stories of the the your your learning here? You and know, has it come out on your art at all? That's interesting. You know, with this uh, residential school show that's going on. You know, uh, Hayden Haynes is like, you know uh, creating that. I wanted to create something for it, and I was just, I couldn't, I couldn't move. I couldn't create something. I know some, I know something's coming, but it was one of those things I was just blocked. I mean, I have these ideas, but it's like, it's, it's so heavy. And I just, um, I'm still thinking about it, you know, I'm still thinking about it. Because I, like, I wanted to do something right away, and I just, I couldn't. I couldn't articulate it fast enough, and it was because of the emotions that are associated with it, and it's because of the stories that I've heard, and it's because of the people that I got to know that were part of those stories, and all of that stuff comes up in my mind when I when I think about that stuff, and um, it just um, so I, something's coming, you know. It's like with that pot for here for Ganondagan, you know that that's that's kind of related to that, you know, it's, it's healing. I, on the bottom it says 215, because that was like the first amount of grave that they found at uh, Kamloops. Um, I put that on the heal 215, you know. Now we're up to 8,000 plus. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's coming, but I, I have to be patient with myself anyway. Um, it's like a filter, you know, and it, if it gets clogged, you know, you gotta like, you gotta just be patient with yourself on how to, how to articulate those things. Um, but I think you're also, way. I think you're also taking that care with it that you've you've kind of been entrusted with, you know, to hear those stories, and you want to do it the right way, you know. I think that that may be part of that struggle, and maybe that's just me, as, you know. No, that is, that is exactly true. Yeah, I'm, I'm really careful about that. Because it'd be easy to make a pot and just sell it and do whatever, and yeah. you know, and kind of, and then you kind of would feel like, well, I'm just kind of making profiteering off of these yeah. atrocities and horrors. But I mean, right. but that's not what you're there for. Like you're, you know, you're on a big, you're on a, dis a different type of mission and a different sort of like, yeah, you know, wave. I'd like to be able to create something that maybe you know uh, an elder that had gone through that would get some sort of healing from that particular. You know, that's my target group are are the actual people that went through it. 
and to do to do that you have to articulate what they went through and that's a hard thing if you never went through what does pottery mean to you and what are pots like what what do they on a on a, a different level of just like a form you know like what you know I, I like to look at them as like vessels you know and mm -hmm. that's where I take them and like they're utilitarian they can do a lot of different things my father is an artist kind of focused in on like paper bags and things like that. Is there a sort of a more abstract sort of um, place that you, you, you go to when you talk about your pottery and, and, the, and the forms you're making? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think about like uh, just when pottery was, you know, um, you know, kind of abolished, I guess, you know, with the, with the European contact, you know, and they, they stopped making it, you know. That's a moment in time. It's a pivotal moment in time that it stopped, you know, for, you know, the brass kettles and kettles and all of that came into play. Um, so it's like the sliver in time, you know, um, where a lot of stuff changed um, when that, they stopped making clay pots. And so going back out and trying to make these pots, you know, and whatever, you know, uh, being true to tradition and also just being, you know, creative, it's it's an act of, of defiance in a way um, because, you know, that is a pivotal time when they stopped working with clay and all that happened, you know, and a lot of stuff happened right after that. You know? um, so to me, that's kind of what it feels like, you know, it's like, oh, you're gonna just, you know, we're going we're gonna to go back and we're going to do that and we're going to go back and we're going to get the language and we're going to go back, you know, and we're going to try to, you know, trace these things and try to untangle this uh, as best as we can because, um, for me personally, it's like I was already kind of like enmeshed in it, you know, it, it wasn't like a um, objective point of view, I was kind of like enmeshed in it with the stories and stuff that I grew up with, and so I have to figure it out because it's in me, because I, I absorbed all of that stuff, so I have to figure it out, you know, and if you don't figure it out, that's not a great, you know, I mean, you have to be careful, so, so the only way, only out is up, and so that's, um, that's kind of how I look at it, any, any kind of art, but yeah, especially pottery though, anything to do with clay, you know, just, uh, I, I think about what was it like for them to make it, you know, I know it was utilitarian, but they still put designs on them, they took time to make these effigies, you know, the, the stories that were, you know, associated with some of those things, um, all of that, you know, are little, little pieces of culture, you know, that maybe we can get back, you know, once you get into that creative process. Absolutely. Um... Well, that, that piece that you put together, you've been kind of referencing a little bit. It was a part of a project that was here at Ganond again that was um, earth altars is what it was. And it was sort of maybe like these places where you could, like an altar, you could take things and add to it, take away from, or just kind of provide some sort of a, you know, as part of like either healing or as part of like a prayer or part of, you know, some sort of homage that may be. Um, I know in like the um, the Day of the Dead uh, ceremonies and things like that, the the ofrendas, you know, where you're making an offering and things like that. Mm -hmm. And I and I was the one that actually I, I reached out to you about that pot because we were taking it, you know, from outside indoors because we didn't want it to be ruined, broken, you know, whatever, mishandled and everything like that. And so I was, I drew the shortest straw and had to go up and you know pick all the rocks out of it and make sure I took care of that <laughs> There's thing. There's a lot of rocks in there too. Um, <laughs> you know, pulling that thing down and bringing it inside. And, um, you know, I was really thinking about you a lot, you know, and just like 
how much I, I do respect, you know, your your challenges and, and what you've been through. And I know that we haven't really connected a lot lately and had time like this ever really to sit down and talk in this way. But um, I, I've heard about you and I've known about you and, I, and I've always kind of known, you know, what you've been doing and I've respected you as an artist and things. And um, and I looked at the pot and each of the, the pieces that you've kind of inscribed and like you said, you used language and wrote on and things like that. And... I wasn't trying to piece together a story and I wasn't doing any kind of forensic pathology around like, you know, is this the, is this Michael? Does this pot represent Mike? You know what I mean? Like it wasn't that. Um, <clears throat> but she did some really cool things in there. I mean, like, can you touch on some different points that were relevant stories or <clears throat> time pieces or time capturing moments in time of like our history of our culture and, and, and who we are as, you know, Onondawaka Seneca people um, but indigenous people broader, from a broader perspective. Um, but tell me a little bit about that piece. I mean, and like, what were some of the things that you had um, incorporated in there, and what were the what were the messages that you wanted people to to take away from that piece? And um, and ultimately, you donated it here as well, which is um, it's a beautiful piece, you know, and it's and it's it's something that's going to you know be a part of the site. And, um, you know, and, and you're a part of the site, <laughs> you know what I mean? You're a relic of, in all of this, <laughs> but, uh, you know, what do you, what, what was the, what was the, uh, the process with that? Um, well, um, that was kind of a culmination of, you know, going through the, you know, COVID-19, you know, and 2020 was pretty rough. Um, lost, lost some elders, um, that spoke during that time. Um, you know, for everybody, it was, it was rough, right? Um, and it um, it really made you look at what what are we doing? You know, what are, how are we spending our time? Uh, what's really important here? Um, and so a lot of it was family. It came back down to family, and it came back down to connection with your family. Um, all that healing needs to start with the family and friends and that that connection that emotional connection so that pot is you know looks like a puzzle piece and um, and so it's kind of a, a, a twofer in a way um, where it symbolizes you know piecing back these you know piecing together these old pots that we find you know in excavation sites or wherever um, to get our culture back intact and whatnot mm. but then on each piece is is written um, you know different things that you can do that are simple but powerful to regain that connection to uh, with yourself really but also with your family so like um, you know just call them is on there um, call them you know forgive um, you know uh, sing dance uh, these these components all together when pieced together um, seem to be uh, how we can heal little by little all of these things, which is what we're doing, which is what they say, like in the original of the instructions, is you know we're singing our songs, we're dancing, you know, we're we're trying to keep a good mind, you know, we're you know forgiveness, you know, all of these things, you know, are they're universal, you know, and um, so that's what I was trying to convey with each one of those puzzle pieces was just little acts that you can do for yourself and for others that go a long way. And, um, and in the process can heal yourself and your immediate family, but also in the process can heal a culture, which is nothing but a big family. So to me, 
in just that story and what you just shared there, I mean, so missing one of those pieces, that's no longer a pot because now it's not going to hold inside of it whatever else it may need. So it needs every one of those pieces to keep it, to make it whole. And so, and from those pots, you know, I, I reached out to you to ask if we could cook in that thing, but you told me it's kind of a mixed piece and whatever mm -hmm. else, and it wasn't really, you know, built that way. But I am going to challenge you at some point to make a, you know, a, a, a cooking vessel for us. Right. Um, but, you know, with, with those pots, I mean, you know, these were like the, maybe like the, the, the office, like, um, water fountain or whatever else, or like the, the mm -hmm. community sort of like bring everybody together place right. where moms could like, you know, or whoever the aunties or the grandmothers or whoever it was that were like creating food, were sharing love and sharing nourishment and nurturing and things like that, that come around these, these pieces and things like that. And, you know, like you said, I mean, that's a really interesting thought that you had where like, they went from a place of like, just stop making those pots you know, wow, mm -hmm. what did that do to us? You know, like, what did that yeah, do to what us? what did that do to us, right? Yeah, that's what we're trying to figure out still, you know, and we're just trying to put it all back together, and that, that's just my kind of way of just saying, well, maybe this seems to be something that we can work on, you know, um, just in my own personal experience, you know, I mean, the pot is, you know, there's two benches, and they're six, they're six feet apart, so it's like you, you remember that space, you know, uh, it's just contemplation, you know, about all of it, you know, it's, a, it's contemplation about what, what's important in life, you know, and um, what are we doing or what can we do to, you know, make it more fruitful. And uh, so that's why those benches are six feet apart, you know, just, uh, just you know, uh, remembering that, you know, uh, we don't, I don't think we'll ever forget it, but, um, but that pot is in the middle. And like you said, it, it's, um, you know, imagine all the stories and all of the things that were going around those original pots that were being, you know, cooking whatever was going on. I mean, that was like the, the main center, you know. It was like Ooh, the television. The yeah, <laughs> it yeah. was like the television. Right. Everybody's kind of huddled around that thing and, you know, sharing and gathering information and doing whatever else. And, yeah. and all sorts of contributions came into that. You know what I mean? Like whoever was out hunting that brought whatever in, you mm -hmm. know, and whatever was grown in the, in the garden and all the conversations that came from that and, Probably a lot of bad jokes and kind of, you know, a lot of bad words, <laughs> you know, came in. Um, you know, but that's that's really an amazing thing. I mean, so that's what I kind of really like about, you know, the pots and the pottery and things like that. And your father was talking about it earlier was that, you know, these are like 3D stories, you know, three-dimensional stories that um, have many different facets to them. And, you know, and, and they speak a language of their own as well, you know. And, and again, it comes from the earth. You know, it comes from where we all come from, is the earth. And, you know, that I thought was just so kind of heavy and deep. And I was like kind of left stuck yeah, with that. Just you know? the fact that you can see somebody's fingerprint in clay today, you know, that's pretty amazing, you know. <laughs> yeah, I've been there, man. I've um, I actually worked in a, in a project one time and I found a thumbprint one time. And I was just thinking, like, when was the last time somebody saw an indigenous person put eyes on that on that piece, you know, and... And who was that artist? Who was that person that that created that? And you know, what was their um, their process? And who were they? You right. know? So that's pretty awesome, man. So have you have you ha have you come across that yourself in your studies and things? Um, What's that? The, have, uh, just a different. Um, well, just even like the the experience of like seeing like those those remnants of a person or whoever have, the yeah, artist. I've seen fingerprints in clay. Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty wild. It's, it's like you want to mm -hmm. like you want to run it through a database. Or something. <laughs> 
think it's gonna pop up. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But yeah, I mean, just the fact it just brings it home. It's like you know those pinch marks that go, you know, those are pinch marks that go around the collar, those kind of things, you know. And when you work with clay, it's it's really therapeutic as well. So I, pretty sure, you know, when they were making it, it was just this meditative process, you know, and which is which is awesome to think about. You know, you can you get a connection when you're doing that. Absolutely. Well, Michael Jones, man, this has been awesome. Um, you know, I appreciate you taking the time to impart your wisdom once again and share with me um, what you've been up to, man. I mean, it's it's cool. I think that you touched on a lot of different topics and subjects that, um, you know, just the casual sort of whoever, you know, may have picked up on something that maybe you were talking about that um, you may have inspired some folks. You know, I mean, I'm certainly inspired. And, um, you know, I look forward to hearing more um, as we kind of, you know, continue on with our, our friendship here and um, to know and understand more about the work that you're doing. And I appreciate the work that you're doing. I appreciate the challenges that you're taking on and that burden and also the responsibility that you take um, in, in learning and, and um, holding and protecting what you're, what you're taking on. You know, I mean, it's, uh, it's commendable, man, and I appreciate what you're doing. And, um, you know, just jago. You know, keep up the good work, and um, you know, I wish you all the best. All right. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you, everybody. This was the Original People's Podcast, Ongwe Hongwe. Please find us again and tune in again because we're going to have more stories as we go through this. But, um, you know, I want to thank Ganondagan State Historic Site. I want to thank the Friends of Ganondagan. I want to thank the Iroquois White Corn Project and just the people who have done the work they are doing, the indigenous people. I don't think we thank us enough. I don't think we thank those people enough for everything that they do to share and give what they've given to the world. Powers in your heartbeat. Right? Powers in your heartbeat. Power is in your heartbeat.